A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high-profile and under-the-radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And our cases this week, it is a rare punishment, but legal in a few states, including Louisiana, where a judge has ordered a repeat sex offender to be chemically castrated after pleading guilty to sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl. The castration will happen before he is released, but that is a long ways away because he has to serve nearly three decades behind bars first. But first, a man who was a contestant on a TV game show, The Family Feud, is arrested for killing a member of his family. Police say the man, who is kind of a local celebrity, killed his estranged wife in the middle of a contentious divorce. Now there are three children with a mother who is dead and a father who is in jail. We are recording this on Wednesday, March 22nd of 2023, and our guest today is Dr. Nikki Ali Jackson, the executive director of the Center for Justice and Post-Exoneration Assistance at Purdue University Northwest. Dr. Jackson is also a professor of criminal justice there and is an expert on domestic violence. Welcome back, Dr. Jackson. We're so thrilled to have you. It's great to see you again, Anna. Thanks for having me. Oh, we, we just always appreciate your insight into everything. And not only are you a brilliant scholar, but you have a truly kind heart. And I think that that's so important when we're talking about the criminal justice system is having heart and compassion. So I can't wait to hear your commentary on the two cases we have today. Thank you. So our first case is out of Quincy, Illinois. It's an interesting one, and it caught our attention because... The person accused here was a contestant on a game show. We've had reality show stars, sadly, accused of crimes before on this program. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about 39-year-old Timothy Bleefnik. And he's been charged with two counts of first-degree murder, one count of home invasion. And police say that he stormed into into his estranged wife's home and he shot her dead. The victim here is 41-year-old Rebecca Bleefnik. Now, Dr. Jackson, I know you're an expert in domestic violence, and what the records have revealed is not only the contentious divorce that was going on, but the fact that each had taken out a restraining order on the other. First, the wife took a restraining order out against the husband and his father, and then the husband, Tim, reciprocated and took out a, um, a restraining order. And we see this a lot, that the ultimate and worst of the violence when it comes to domestic violence is murder. And you must see that a lot. Well, we see that, you know, victims will get murdered, you know, when they're trying to exit a relationship. There's no question about that. That's the most dangerous time for a victim is when they, you know, when they attempt to leave. And that doesn't mean they attempt to leave right away. And so folks think that it's immediately at the time that they that they sign these, you know, separation papers or whatever they're doing, but it can happen over the course of, you know, two years. So this could have been a situation, it possibly was, that, you know what, he just blew up and, you know, maybe he just lost it at that moment. I, I don't know, but that's a possibility. 
Yeah, and what's also interesting is that um, a lot of the records were available in family court because of the divorce, but once the murder happened and then he was arrested, the uh, prosecutors have moved to seal a lot of those records because now all of this will have some implication, I would think, on the murder trial, if there is to be a trial. Yeah, so from my understanding of this case, there was no like documented history of domestic violence. Maybe, did you see something that I didn't see? Because well, I couldn't well, find be anything. Because of the restraining orders, specifically mm. based on the restraining orders that clearly each of them at some point felt that they were uh, very susceptible and vulnerable to sure. the other. So right. we, I, I agree with you, Dr. Jackson. I didn't see anything about prior arrests no. or 911 calls. It seems to all have come out during the contentious divorce. Right. And, you know, quite, there could have been, obviously, we know that domestic violence happens behind closed doors. There could have been, you know, uh, situations, issues that were taking place behind the the walls and the only people who will really know that are the children um, that will legitimately know will be the children. So um, it's really unfortunate what's happened. I think police from watching the press conference, the police clearly waited. They did some, you know, they did some research investigation. And I really liked what Chief Yates said is, you know, there is a presumption of innocence. Yes. And knowing my background and the work I, I do, I work with, I've worked with domestic violence victims but I also work with people who've been wrongly convicted. So I always go with that presumption of innocence. But I do believe listening to that chief of police that there must have been something in that search. They haven't released what was found during the search, but there had to have been something that led to probable cause, which led to his arrest. They had to have probable cause to make an arrest. What that probable cause is, we don't know yet. It's, right. it's too early to know. And they also um, didn't make the arrest immediately, as you no. pointed out. They took some time to investigate. Right. So uh, no doubt he would have been a likely su suspect at the very top of the For list sure. simply because of the contentious divorce. However, um, police did take their time and made sure that they had the evidence. And it's interesting when he had his hearing that they actually, the judge asked to clear the courtroom at one point because they were going to introduce some of the evidence as part of this hearing, this bail hearing. And, but apparently family, they were allowed to stay in, but no one knows what was actually introduced at that time. So That's interesting. it was so I think, very, I think the police and the prosecutor are being very, very cautious. They're being very guarded. I think they're, they're processing this very carefully and that's the way it should be handled. And I think that will, um, you know, afford him a fair trial. Um, I think that, you know, if they go out and they start talking and, and saying lots of things and tainting potential jurors, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be problematic. But we mm -hmm. always know that it's the husband is always the first suspect. And, you know, what would be the motive for, for anybody else to kill this woman? You know, they said there are no other suspects. So the police have and the, and the chief police actually said we don't want to engage in tunnel vision. And I like that he said that because oftentimes police, you know, will get fixated on one suspect and that's their person. And he was very clear that, you know, we've we've ruled out other potential suspects. So we don't want to go into this case with tunnel vision. And I think that's a great approach. Yeah, I agree with you there. So Rebecca was found dead in her home by a relative. This is after she failed to show up 
to pick up the kids. And sadly, I've seen several cases recently on the podcast where the mother doesn't show up to pick yep. up the children. And that's what starts the search. It, it is it is such a frightening moment. Right. So they were in the middle of this bitter divorce and they had separated two years earlier. And according to the reporting of TV station KHQA, she had filed that restraining order. That's where all the information came from. Now, Quincy is a small town. It's in Western Illinois. It's about 40,000 people. And Tim was fairly well known, which I find very interesting. He played football for Quincy University. He's actually in the school's hall of fame for his um, athleticism. He was on that TV show, Family Feud. And he also did some acting, some stand-up comedy. He's got um, some videos on TikTok. I, I saw some of his humor is a bit off color, so we're not going to be playing that because actually some of it was, I found it racially offensive. I um, did too. I did too. I was really, really um, like taken aback when I was listening to some of the things that he said. He, d- he didn't seem like the same character that we saw in Family Feud. Yes. I, I felt yes. like the family feud was like his front stage persona. And then when you saw the TikTok, it was his backstage persona. Um, so, you know, I think that's more the real person that, that we saw on the TikTok than what we saw on Family Feud. Yes, I thought that was so interesting because on Family Feud, you know, they're all dressed up. The whole family looks great. He looks fabulous, right? And then you see him on TikTok and then you see his mugshot and you're Uh, like, whoa. Completely different person. (laughs) Like, who is this man? Right. Something's happened over the course of these past few years, right? Because Family Feud, from my understanding, that episode was filmed actually in 2019, And it had aired in 2020. So it's been, what, four years since, you know, since that was taped. And so something has clearly happened just by looking at his appearance, just by the appearance alone. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting also is his father. You know, she had filed a restraining order against his father as well. So I'd like to know more about what was dad doing? You know, what, 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 why did she file this restraining order against, you know, her father-in-law? Yes, I found that that. very interesting, and we don't know the answer to that. And usually early on in these crimes, there's a lot of information we don't know, and we shouldn't know if we want to make sure that there's a fair trial and a fair process. I I always get that. Um, A little bit more on Rebecca here. She was an ER nurse at Blessings Hospital, and she was certified not only as a trauma nurse, but a sexual assault nurse examiner, according to reports. And so she also attended Quincy University, and then the couple married in 2009. They had three children, Deacon, Grayson, and Arlen. In 2020, Tim and some of his family members, but not his wife, appeared on Family Feud. Now, this was a very big deal in Quincy because not only was he on television with his family, but the local TV station covered a viewing party that they had in town when the episode aired. So what I'm saying is that was kind of a big deal in Quincy for everyone. And um, I think it's important because it goes toward fame, notoriety, and then what happens in your life. And then it's what he said. It's what he said that um, it's not so much that he appeared on Family Feud, it's what he said and the question he was asked. So we are, first of all, we're going to play a little clip from KHQA. This is from, this is Tim being interviewed at the time when they're having the viewing party and everyone's watching Family Feud with him. 
That's a little uncomfortable. It was really cool to see and kind of relive it, but I also didn't remember half of the things from answers and stuff. People were like, oh, well, what's that one? I'm like, I don't remember. So a typical interview, right? You know, a local guy on TV with his family. So it is what Tim said on Family Feud, which everyone has remembered now because of the murder of his wife. So host Steve Harvey at the time asked him, this was the question on the big board. I'm a big Family Feud kind of fan. You know, I want to say survey says. <laughs> I'm with you. I watch it too. Right? Yeah. In fact, so, I think I actually saw that episode, to be honest with you. I'm pretty confident I saw that episode. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I remember it. My gosh. Okay. So Steve Harvey asked him, this is the big question on the board and it's come to him. And the question is, you know, for the survey, what's your biggest mistake you made at your wedding? And then Tim sarcastically responds saying, I do. And everyone's like, whoa, and making a big deal about it. He ends up having the right question because it, it tallies pretty high on the board yeah. of answers. Um, so, so it tells you that other people in that 100 people survey agreed with him, right? I think it was ranked number two yes. on the list. It was number two. So there were a lot of people who said the same thing. Biggest exactly. mistake. Biggest mistake. Saying I do. Yeah. So it was a funny moment at the time. And then, you know, um, he he also made sure to say, you know, I'm just joking, honey, I really love you. He said to to his wife, remember, his wife was not there. And so that was the episode. Now we're going to play a little clip for you so just you can see the tone of it. What's the biggest mistake you made at your wedding? Honey, I love you, but said I do. Oh. <laughs> not my mistake. I love my wife. I'm going to get in trouble for that, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> so clearly, Tim had the right answer, but, and of course, his family scored. But the problem is, now that Tim stands accused of murdering his wife, after having said that on national television, the question that many are asking is, did he really regret marrying her? And was there a revelation there? of what was really going on and later played out. Right. I think that's an interesting uh, question. I mean, think about it. They were just at the beginning, I believe, of their, their separation. So when he said, I love my wife, maybe he, he meant it. Maybe he was trying to get her back. I don't know. But um, what's interesting is the timing of that answer. Not the fact that it was ranked number two, but the timing of it. So for, at least for me, that was a little bit uh, eerie that, you know, he makes that comment when right before he and his wife were separating. So we know that there had to have been some issues at the time. Maybe that's why she was not on Family Feud. Um, you know, it was just him, his his siblings, I believe, and his, his parents. So they're, you know, they're, they may have been alienated at the time that he actually made that comment and said, oh, but honey, I love you, you know, it's, mm -hmm. I, you know, if I, I'm married, if my husband said something like that, I would be like, wait, what did he just say? And especially if, you know, you were going through a separation, you'd be like, is he, you know, is he for real? Is he saying this for real? But yeah, yeah. It, I think he, he, you know, just watching his TikTok videos and, and even seeing him on Family Feud, he likes attention, I believe. I, I think he really loved, craved attention. I agree with you. I, I mean, obviously, being on Family Feud and what he said will truly not have any bearing 
on the criminal case because this is a game show and it's a joke. Whether it gets introduced or not, I have no idea. They'd have to prove what it has to do, you know. Well, Steve this- Harvey, did you hear what Steve Harvey said to him? Steve Harvey said, you know, you're going to be okay if it ranks number two. But if it ranks number seven, you're in a bit of trouble. And so when it ranked number two, then he was like, ah, you know, this is great that there are other people. So I'd be interested to hear what Steve Harvey has to say about this now. I don't know if you saw the interview of the one of the contestants on the other side. I, no. I actually I saw a video of a woman who was being interviewed who was the you know on the other the opposing side the other family and she said he seemed like a great guy he was so handsome he was this he was that and she was just going on and on but she said but when he he you know made that statement she said they were kind of taken aback by that too so I thought that was very interesting mm. that he was charismatic you know, enough that she would even remember him. You know, it was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. So on February 23rd, Rebecca's body was found by a family member. She had been shot multiple times. Tim's home was searched, as you said, Dr. Jackson. And a few weeks later, on March 13th, Tim was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of home invasion. At a news conference, Prosecutor Josh Jones said that uh, the murder was indeed an act of domestic violence. And then the Quincy police chief, Adam Yates, had this to say specifically to Rebecca's family. This clip is courtesy of WGEM-TV. To Ms. Belipnik's family, nothing we can do as a police department will ever bring Rebecca back to you and her three boys. All we can do is use our tools, talents, and every available resource to bring you justice. Our thoughts and prayers remain with you. I really appreciate what the police chief said here because we often talk about and ask the question, what is justice and how will we see justice? And and he's at the core of it is you can never bring back the person who was murdered. Under any circumstances, there can never be anything that will be equal to that. But with the tools available to us and the laws that we have, you do the best you can to try and get justice. And so I'm always appreciative when um, the person at the top of the police department is saying, we're working toward that goal here. And at the same time, he says, but remember that the accused is innocent. So uh, until proven guilty. So I really feel that there's um, a very level-headed person there at the the top of the uh, the police department, which is needed in a case like this. So Timothy's attorney, Casey Shanick says her client is innocent and she describes her client as, quote, your standard all-American Midwestern dad. And she said he was very active in the community, that he was a youth football coach, um, actively involved in his church. A lot of people knew him. I believe that to be so. And she says it's very surprising that this is where the family is right now. So, you know, 
that that is what she has to say on on his behalf. Yeah, I'm not sure what a you know what a Midwestern dad is. I mean, I wanted more information on that. I was like, what you know, what it, it, does that mean that he's a good doting father? I, I don't know what Midwestern dad meant. I live in the Midwest. I don't know what a Midwestern dad is because all the dads I know are quite different. So I'm not really sure what she was trying to say. But my guess is she's trying to say he's just a n- normal father who's a good father. Um, she didn't say anything, though. What was interesting is she never spoke about him as a husband. She only spoke about him as a father. So I thought that was really interesting. Agreed. Agreed. A, a lot more to come on that one. So Tim is currently being held in the Adams County Jail without bail. According to police, uh, the children are currently working with the Illinois Department of Family Services to find a suitable placement because of Rebecca's death. And then the father is in jail. And so obviously grandparents, aunts and uncles, I'm, that's always the preference to try and keep the children with a family member. But my guess that one of the reasons this may not be absolutely so clear is that restraining order against the father-in-law and what that may reveal. Yeah, I, I don't know. But I, I thought the same thing, because typically when a parent dies and, a, you know, the other spouse is in, in, in jail, they will give it to, a, you know, the children to a family member. Uh, but it's typically the 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 wife's family. So I'm curious as to why that didn't happen, why they didn't give it to the, you know, their maternal um side. I just don't know why they weren't given to the maternal parents unless the paternal side was fighting. I, I don't know. We don't know those answers yet. We but don't. It, it's, un, it's really unusual that they're not given to family. You know, the children are not given to family when you've got, when you have family available. Yeah. Well, hopefully it's still being figured out and maybe they're yeah. taking um, a lot of extra time to make sure every home and whomever they're looking at yeah. is the best fit. That's my hope, although it's been it's been some time now. And keeping kids in um, a place where they're feeling unstable when something so traumatic has happened does not help with their mental and emotional stability at the yeah. time. And they didn't say if the children were, were together or if they had been separated. We just don't know. And this is, as you said, Anna, very, you know, traumatic experience for the children. Um, I'm wondering if the court says we want them to go elsewhere because we don't want the, you know, Becky's family to, to, you know, try to sway the children one way or his family, Tim's family to sway the children. So we want them in a neutral place. It's a possibility. Oh, it's horrible. Like when you're that, when you're that child, think about it. Who do you turn to? Which if, you know, provided all the grandparents, aunts and uncles who, whomever you have there it's very hard for those kids to find comfort because it's also very charged within the family you've got you know one side accused of killing the other i mean that's very serious so yeah i mean some of the folks the women that i've worked with who've been exonerated for murdering a spouse it's very hard for them to rebuild their relationships with their children because their children have taken the side that they actually committed the murder because they've heard that from, you know, one, one side who said your mother killed your, you know, your father. So, you know, they, the, the court may be trying to prevent something like that from happening, which would be a good thing, but 
you know, sadly, these kids have been through so much first mom is murdered and, and, you know, horrifically murdered. I mean, I don't know if there's a non-horrific murder, but, you know, it's a shot multiple times. And then you've got dad in jail. So all of a sudden their lives have just been shattered. And now they're with strangers. I mean, we're, I'm just hoping, and I, I think it sounds like that this uh, chief of police and the prosecutor, it sounds like all of them, the domestic violence people, all of them are working, I think, from what we saw in the press conference, at least, that they're working, you know, in the best interest of the children. So I, yeah. I imagine that they're going to find the best caretakers for these children. I, I hope so. I believe they will. Rebecca's sister has started a GoFundMe account to help not just with funeral costs, but also to help the children here because they have the rest of their lives ahead. Um, so we don't know what the finances are. And then she said of her late sister, quote, despite the circumstances of her death, she is remembered for the life she cherished, a life of compassion, generosity, faith, and fierce love of her family. Our next case is out of Louisiana, where a judge has ordered that a repeat sex offender be chemically castrated as part of his conviction. The judge in this case used every available tool in the sentencing of this man, and this is what he believes is justice. And this really caught my attention, because honestly, at first, Dr. Jackson, I was like, is this even legal? Like, I hadn't heard of a case recently of chemical castration, and, and so... I was like, this isn't, this is real, right? You know, and I checked different organizations, news organizations, and I'm like, wow, 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 wow. So controversial. So controversial. And majority of states don't use it. Um, last I read, I believe there were nine states that, that allowed it. Um, so it's not something that's very common in the United States. That's for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and... You know, looking at both sides here, one of the things um, that our listeners and viewers always find so frustrating is the, the what is perceived as a lack of justice when it comes to dealing with um, criminals who are not only repeat offenders, but assault children and do so in a sexual nature and how there is never a feeling of that uh, the punishment ever, ever fits that crime. And so this seems kind of something from, you know, thousands and hundreds of years ago, you know, um, as a way of approaching a crime. But I think it strikes a nerve with people, which is why I really wanted to talk about it. I wanted to talk about it. What do you think? Do you think, you know, I'm asking all of you to weigh in. Do you think this is justice? Is this something that should be used um, we're going, going to explain how and when it will be used according to the judge's order. And then it will be, of course, up to all of you to have a discussion with us on YouTube. So we're talking here about 34-year-old Ryan Clark of Kentwood. Now, he pleaded guilty on March 1st to felony charges of second-degree rape, molestation of a juvenile, and sexual battery. He repeatedly assaulted a 13-year-old girl over the course of a year, over the course of a year, Clark has a prior arrest for a sexual offense, also with a minor, which was a misdemeanor at the time, and he was sentenced to 128 days in jail back in 2015. It was 
a person who knew the victim in this case, who contacted the sheriff's department and said, I believe this is going on. And then the sheriff's department on July 16th of 2020 contacted the police about the abuse for further investigation. The other things that the investigators found was the possibility of a second minor, perhaps also having been victimized by Ryan Clark. So then an arrest warrant was issued for Ryan Clark. He was taken into custody in July of uh, July 17th of 2020, initially charged with sexual battery and molestation of a juvenile. However, after obtaining more information, the charge of first degree rape was then brought against him. So he's been indicted by a grand jury. This happened back on February 12th of 2021. And um, it's interesting. They were in the jury selection process for his trial when he decides he will plead guilty and avoid the trial. And so that all happened in March. And that explains how we ended up here. So what's interesting about this sentence so he was sentenced last week on march 14th and he was sentenced to 35 years of prison by judge brian abels now he's not going to be eligible for the first 25 years of his sentence so he's definitely going to be around and behind bars for a very long time now here's what's so interesting it will be prior to his release the judge says that is when the chemical castration will begin prior to his release. So while some of you might have been thinking, wow, so they're going to do that now and then he's going to sit in jail? No, there are some parameters here. Um, there are some parameters. So I, I don't know what to make of this. I find this a very curious case and an application of the law. And this is a law which Louisiana enacted. Yeah. So, you know, people have this idea. It used to be surgical castration, right? That's how we used to well, the court, some courts said this will work, but what people don't understand about rape is that uh, some people don't understand about rape is it's not about sex. It's about power. It's about anger. And when, you know, I read these studies that say, oh, surgical castration, you know, it worked. The recidivism rate was really low. What I'm thinking is, I don't know if that's really the case. I mean, what it does is it decreases sexual urges. But that doesn't mean they're not going to reoffend, and I think people need to understand that—that that it's not going to prevent him from reoffending. And I don't think you know people really understand the, the I guess the course of what this means with with chemical castration. Um, I think you know if you want power over a child, if you're you know interested in children. You know, um, I, I don't think that this chemical castration is going to to change that. So what we really have to understand, is this for punishment or is this to reduce the risk of another child being harmed? I think that's if it's about punishment, maybe this is what you do. If this is about really reducing recidivism rates, I don't I don't believe it really will. In fact, I know that there were some cases in the past where they engaged in surgical castration and the perpetrator engaged in more violent behavior. They're using bottles and other horrific objects to 
to uh, harm their victim because it was all about power and, and, you know, and rage. And one of the things people don't understand about pedophiles is that there's really two different times. They're not all one in the same, you know, some really are only attracted to children. There are some pedophiles who are just attracted to children. They're called fixated pedophiles and most of their victims are male. Then you have a regressed pedophile who typically, you know, are attracted to, you know, same appropriate age partners. But when a situation arises, they may, you know, um, they, they may, they may want to engage in inappropriate, unlawful behaviors with that minor. And those tend to be female victims. But at the end of the day, I'm not a huge fan of chemical castration because I don't think it's going to change future behavior. And it's interesting, they're going to do it a week before he gets out. That's, I think, what I read. They'll, they'll do, well, are they not worried about him, you know, assaulting anybody while he's incarcerated? I mean, maybe he's going to, you know, harm, rape other people, other inmates, and maybe people don't care about that. I do care about that. But, you know, it, why not do it now? Why not just do it now? So he well, doesn't see, harm. That's, that's interesting, Dr. Jackson, because I would think if they did it now, 30 years before the guy's released, then I think you could make an argument. It's like, well, why are you doing that now when he's not going to be released? And, and the, and the population, meaning the community is not at risk where by waiting until right before he's released, it feels more targeted. If you're worried that this is a form of punishment that um, it, it's more targeted and specific, I guess, the way I look at it. I'm not, I can't tell you whether this is humane or not, because I honestly, I don't know. I, I need to understand more about it, but it does seem certainly more focused if you do it, if that's the intention uh, at the time of release, as opposed to doing it now as a form of punishment. You did this, you're going to be in prison for 30 years, and then we're also going to do this to you. Right. So, and I don't know, that may be the law, the very, there could be some specifics um, there in Louisiana as to how it is administered. And the way. And when it's administered. And when it's be, administered. Yeah, there could be. But I, I think, you know, if you're, if, if you really believe in chemical castration, do it. Do, I mean, if that's what you believe, do it while they're still incarcerated because there's, there is a young population. In prison, protect right. them. Whether you believe in protecting inmates or not, but I believe that we're we, we're telling the community that you know what this is a public safety interest that when he's finally released, that young people will be will be safe. I I, I don't buy it. There's so there's so many factors involved. There have to be treatment programs. So is Louisiana saying this guy when he gets out? Not only will he engage, you know, will they do this chemical castration on him, but will he have to go through some treatment program? They have to know. do something. They have and to do something more than that. I would think so. I mean, obviously, he's going to be a registered sex offender right. for life. He's forfeiting any parental rights he may have. And the the way this chemical castration works, the little I've I've read on it is. Um, it's a series of injections that dramatically reduce the testosterone levels, um, and then that lowers the sex drive and perhaps increases the control over these impulses. But as you say, this is an issue of violence and control. So, um, you know... And it doesn't it, control that. 
It doesn't See, control that. That's so, that's going to be the thing was going to be how do you deal with the control? It's and this is a bill that was signed into law in 2008 in Louisiana. And then I guess at some point they were um, actually trying to get a um, full castration bill passed. But that didn't that that didn't work. Um, and there was a, also an issue um, having to do with I think this seems to stem based on some of the historical information is like again crimes against children and right. what what do you as a community how do you deal with this in your efforts to get justice and prevent this from happening again is it possible that someone hears oh my lord chemical castration i don't know i well, some states you know they give the offender this option so it's voluntary uh, i'm not sure what louis if in Louisiana, it's voluntary or if it's involuntary that the court just makes that decision. But in some areas, some countries, some states, they say it's a choice that the offender can make, which is very interesting. So, you know, are you really punishing somebody when they're they're making a choice? I, I mean, for me, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around all of this because I don't believe, I mean, I've worked with sexual assault victims and I don't believe that we're really getting to the root of the problem. I don't want sex offenders out on, on our streets. I mean, that's just the bottom line. I don't want them, you know, approaching my children, your children, anybody's children. So we have to look at what is the best measure. And I'm not convinced that this is the best measure yet. I don't know the answer. I'll be very, either. I'll be very curious to see what you all think about this case. It is time for our comments section. These are the crime cases that you all are talking about on social media. Here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, how's it going, Anna? Good. So, uh, Nikki, you weren't with us last week, but last week we had a very low stakes robbery where a guy robbed a dollar and basically waited for police to come so he could get arrested. This week we have a robbery that's a little bit more high stakes. Uh, this one comes out of Santa Cruz, California, where... Thieves reportedly stole uh, over half a million dollars of marijuana from a dispensary there. This was all captured on surveillance video outside of Three Bros Marijuana Warehouse, which is on Fair Avenue in Santa Cruz. And there's so there's at least four cars parked outside this business. And these mass robbers, they go in, they come out, uh, they they load each of the vehicles with dozens of bags of weed. I'll show a I'll show a picture for our uh, for our YouTube watchers. But it's I I mean it's basically like you would imagine. It's the trunk of a car open, and there's like these huge like clear. They kind of are like trash bags just full of weed. Uh, so according to the Santa Cruz police, the men forcefully broke into the store around 2.30 a.m. last week, and they drove off in different directions once the job was done. So this feels a little bit more uh, calculated than than a standard sma like smash and grab uh, operation. It's uh, a serpentine. Then, uh, it's a, did yeah. anyone ever see the original movie and then the remake of The In-Laws? Nobody ever watches. This is a weird reference. Serpentine. One says to the other. Serpentine, so you can't get caught. Never mind. It's a that's the code nutty word. little reference. <laughs> um, and so the, they interviewed witnesses on the scene, and one of the witnesses said that the these thieves were armed, and they worked so efficiently they were in and out in less than fifteen minutes. The witness even said it was really hard for them to identify anything because it just it happened really just so quickly. And police speculate that this might not have been the first job of these thieves. Uh, they think this group might have been responsible for a second robbery and another. case 
cannabis store uh, in Santa Cruz as well. Uh, that happened, uh, you know, a, about a half a week before this one. Uh, so currently no arrests have been made. Like I said, all they have is a surveillance video, um, which they have made publicly available. But people had a lot to say about this one. Uh, I, honestly, a lot of people were really up in arms about they, they didn't think that this amount of weed was truly half a million dollars. Philip G said that's not a half a million dollars worth. I call BS. Now, to their credit, uh, we only had like a, one of the photos of the cars being loaded. So if you didn't read the article, you missed the context that there were multiple, multiple cars. Uh, Harley said that car would stink of weed, which... I, yeah, I would imagine that's a situation where you get pulled over, even if they can't see in the trunk. Uh, it's pretty obvious what's going on over there. We had some people upset that this might end up in an evidence locker when these guys are caught. Michelle T said, please say this didn't go to waste. Maddie was convinced that it didn't. Uh, they said, that's what I smoke on a weekend, which... <laughs> Hey, well, you know, whatever, whatever you're doing over there. Uh, but my favorite comment, <laughs> which got a lot of uh, other users uh, sort of going as well, uh, was from Joe T. And they said, when I worked at a jail and interviewed defendants, the number one excuse that we heard regarding drugs was it's not mine. It's my grandmother's, which uh, of all the people, the grandmother is a is a very odd one. I mean, I could understand friend. Uh, I could understand. I don't know where this came from, but to go for the grandmother, I feel like I, that was one that if I was ever caught for drugs, that one would not cross my mind. Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't well, seem ultimately <laughs> that compelling, apparently, to, well, according to Joe. My I husband just... is an ER doctor in Chicago, in Chicago and he's had grandmother with drugs so it could be it could it be. does happen there okay. you go yeah he's had them come in high like he's had 70 and 80 year olds come in high it's like what so it's hard for us to wrap our head around that but yeah it does happen but i wouldn't throw my grandmother under the bus oh no no no, no. no. i'm curious Loyalty. though like you know i don't know of what it's like in santa cruz but in los angeles these dispensaries are like got a serious security. I mean, every time you're driving by, the only person that like full on, you know, full metal, everything with more, th you know, um, ammunition. And I mean, it's the, usually the security guards have so much stuff on them as I think to myself, who would be crazy enough to ever go into this business to hold them up because you got to get through them before you can. So I, I'm, I'm very curious that, that, um, that this group may have done this before, I guess they have figured out how to penetrate through the security defenses. Yeah. Maybe it's because they went at a weird time or something where like the security is a little more lax. I don't know. Or was it an inside job? Ooh, there you go. Just a thought, just a thought. There you go. Dr. Jackson's on it. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Jackson, Nikki, thank you so much for joining us this week. It's been such a pleasure, always a pleasure. Uh, I know we've been talking about some of the exoneration cases that you're working on. It is your life's work and your passion. And um, it's not easy work. It is oh, not it easy work. Not Where can all. people find you or follow the cases that you're working on? Well, they can't follow any of the cases we're working on because we haven't advertised those, but they can, if anybody's interested in any of the work that I'm doing, they can email me um, at cjpa at pnw.edu. 
Um, if somebody's interested in any of the work, we have several cases right now that we are working on, but we're not only working on, you know, helping somebody get exonerated, but we also work on assisting exonerees um, who are, you know, who recently got out or been out for a while, who need services. Right now I'm helping a woman in Georgia who needs a dentist. So if anybody knows a dentist who will help a woman who was wrongly convicted for murder um, with some dental work, we are desperately in need of some pro bono work. Um, so we're, we're helping people who've been exonerated based on factual innocence. So somebody who was wrongly convicted, they didn't commit the crime, not a procedural error, and the, you know, most states have no reentry efforts, as you already know, Anna. So I opened up this center and we offer assistance to those folks and not only here in Indiana, but throughout the country. So oh. again, cjpa at pnw.edu. We're going to link to your website, Thank your you. center, and come on, Georgia, step up and help up here. Yes. Um, and as I've said, Nikki, I said at the beginning of the program, um, what makes you so special is that you have a heart. Oh, thank you so much for that. It's very sweet. I appreciate it. It's important. It's important that we don't lose sight of the humanity here. So um, we're going to link to all of that for you, thank Nikki. You. Um, you can find me at Anna G News on all your social media, on you know wherever you are, you'll find me. You can find this podcast and all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Also receive our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.